Welcome back to the Dance Rounds podcast. This is part two of our discussion with Sean Fitzgerald Ahern, choreographic assistant to City Library Shekoy of Eastman. Now you've done a load of TV related work because you also, going back to Pilobolus, you did the Penn and Teller performance as well, right? Mm hmm. So what's that like doing that for really a TV audience as well? Well, I guess you did a few of those because of some of the Shadowland stuff was also yeah, done on. I've done a bunch of um, television stuff for the news and for live television audiences. And they're all really uh, different and, in my opinion, very strange. <laughs> I'd say. Um, because they are recorded live. But, um, I mean, my first like live television performance with a live audience i was like so jazzed never been on live television before like i mean like 21 or something i'm like so fresh so green so excited backstage like guys this is gonna be so great i'm gonna it's gonna be i'm gonna do really well it's gonna be perfect <laughs> uh-oh and then i come out there it was for a live version of um, all is not lost this music video that we made with the rock band okay go who are very cool people and uh, so we have like a significant television spot and we come out and music hits. We enter, do the whole thing, live audience clapping. Woo, great, awesome. And we get off the table and then like the music stops and then crew comes out and they're sort of shifting around. And I'm like, what's going on? And they're like, oh, yeah, they're just changing that camera. And like the audience is, somebody's out there like talking to the audience like, hey, did you hear this joke? I heard this one from my mom I was like, blah, 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 with a microphone. And I'm like, what's going on? And they're like, great, guys. Cool. So we're going to do that again. And I'm like, but it's live television. You can't just do it again. And they're like, yeah, that's what everybody thinks is that it just happened that one time. But we're going to change the lighting a little bit and change some camera angles and we're going to run that again. And I was like, okay, cool. This is actually great. This is great because we have a second track. Guys, this is awesome. <laughs> Don't worry. Like, what's the audience going to think though? Because they already saw it. Oh, whatever. I'm not, let's not focus on that. And then like eight tries later, I'm like completely exhausted. Like adrenaline has already run its course. I'm like, this is the worst thing <laughs> ever because <laughs> it's cold in here. <laughs> We've already done it. <laughs> The adrenaline ran out. Now I just feel exhausted and shaky, you know, and then they have somebody coming in and be like, all right, guys, let's get that applause going. Come on. The audience is like, yay, we haven't ever seen this before. And then you run out and do your thing. And yeah, it's weird. Also, they didn't have the rights. Uh, no, this, sorry. This was a different. Uh, this is the Penn and Teller one, which we actually we made an evening, uh, not an evening like work, but like a full work with Penn and Teller in Vegas, which was hilarious and and incredibly different than anything else i've ever made working with two magicians uh, as collaborators so then they brought us on their show i think it's called fool us or something they they, you, they bring on magicians and they do a trick and the gig is that they pen and teller have to try to figure out they have to say like we know how you did it and if they know how you did it then you lose and if they can't figure it out then you win some prize i don't know glory and some trophy i don't know but uh, so so we go to do that one, and um, which was much more like normal because it's a Vegas audience in their theater where they're normally performing. So it feels much more like a show. But something happened where they didn't have the music rights to use it on television to the music that we had originally choreographed it on, which was, I think, like Aerosmith or something. Something like really, really cheesy with like this strip tease that I end up doing, um, like a houdini inspired like escape act off this pole which is 
a whole other story. But so we go out there and then we start and then we have to play. We just do it in silence. <laughs> and it's just so awkward doing a strip tease in silence. I don't know. If, maybe it's already awkward to do. It's not a strip tease. I'm sort of exaggerating, but and you're you're like handcuffed to another another man as well, right? I'm literally chained with a hard metal chain around <laughs> another naked dude with like a brass stripper pole between us, and we have to scale this pole to like untie this knot that we've been chained up by our female colleagues chained us up, and then we get out there, and I'm expecting some like funky Aerosmith song to come on and instead it's just silent and Matt and I are like trying to like look at each other around this pole like what's what's going on they're like oh it's we don't have the music rights just go for it so we go for it and then like later in post they just lay some like strange royalty free track over it that's like like, what is happening I have no idea tell it live performances for live recorded television is really weird but some people get their jams there and that was with with palabolos right that was with palabolos both of those experiences yeah how does uh palabolos manage to get these opportunities on such a high platform or such a exposed platform like tv is it because of the like they have such a broad collaborative effort with a range of different disciplines yeah i think that's a really good point of a contributing factor is that they have this sort of reach out through their intellectual and artistic interests into many different realms into uh, Penn and Teller are world famous magicians. Um, we made a piece with MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, their distributed robotics division with some drones that were flying around before drones were a thing. And uh, with- You made it cool. Oh, you guys, we knew drones before anybody. <laughs> Which like, and and storytellers and rock bands and like all of these different places that have their own connections and, and people they know and people we know and it comes together and it's sort of the lattice work gets built from this mutual adoration. But, and not, you know, not all of them are wild successes, but it again is going back to this idea of like expanding the audience and expanding the meaning of what contemporary dance is, dance theater, I don't know. Robbie Barnett, one of the founders of Palabolas, said, yeah, I mean, we call ourselves a dance company for want of a better word. People sort of labeled us that, and we thought, like, that's not what we are. And they said, what are you? And we went, like, uh... Yeah, we're a fungus. I guess, yeah, we are a (laughs) phototropic fungus. One of my my favorite ways to depict Palabolas, which is, uh, in fact, a fungus in, in scientific terms, is is this when I was in college on the like little board outside of the director of my dance department, her office they had a little board outside with all these for posters and whatever flyers about summer programs and stuff. And there was this like the modern dance family tree, and they like had the roots of you know Isadora Duncan and Martha Graham and all these big names, and then that shoots off into a you know a small branch and you have Horton and like this and that and everything, and the branches get smaller and there's leaves and like how everyone is connected and it's this beautiful hand drawn tree with all the names scrawled in and like little you know beautiful script. You, know, you can trace every you can trace your lineage back through this person and that person all the way down to the, the roots of you know dance in the world. And this is a beautiful tree. And then off to the side in the shade, there's a little mushroom 
And it says Palabolus. <laughs> completely disconnected from the whole thing. I was like, oh, dang it. <laughs> That's the company I want to join. Yeah. <laughs> Literally just off the side of the tree. Like, that's kind of how it feels when you're in the company. The rest of the modern dance world is like, oh, you're in Palabolus. Okay. And you're like, yeah. Yes, I am. <laughs> but do they, I would have thought Palabolus like, commanded quite a lot of respect in America. It certainly does it in its own way. Okay, yeah. But there's no denying that it's this outside factor. Yeah, well, it's not the, the most commonly treaded route that people go through, but it's really interesting what a lot of yeah. the stuff they've done. And it's sort of fitting that it's just this outlier on this family tree of dance because it was these intellectual hippie jocks that yeah. took a dance class and they were like, great, we have a company. Yeah. Like, well, you didn't train with so-and-so. And you're like, yeah, but this so? is that I just made up. Like, we can just have a dance company, I decided. You know, like, <laughs> it doesn't have to be related to anything else. Free world. Yeah. Well, it's also nice to see, like, how successful they are by actually removing the preconception of what dance is yeah absolutely i think that's been the cornerstone of their success is that it can be anything how has that journey been for you as a dancer though because obviously we each as individuals have our own idea of dance and certain works we manage to tap into that better and certain things we yeah i don't know they feel more in line was that always exciting and thrilling or was it also quite I'd say with the TV stuff, some of it could have been harder to stay connected to. I think that's the beauty of a Palabolus show, sort of. They, they typically like have a show where it's divided into small sections and it's really diverse. Like the, the company itself is typically a, a very diverse cast of people. And you might love something and you might hate something that you see in an evening performance but you know that you're going to sort of have an interesting experience along the way. And I think that being in the company was a similar experience, you know, like you don't love every collaboration that you do, but it's never going to be the same for very long. You're going to have a diverse range of experiences. And that's something that I really like. And also a reason why I like working with Larby and that I really, I knew I wanted to work with Larby. We, I worked with Larby first in Palabolus. He came in and we made a piece together in 2011, I think, and had a really positive connection with him and knew that he was working in this other pond of her across the pond, I guess, um, that, he, that he had this other group of collaborators and colleagues, but was also working in a very diverse way. And I, I loved that about Palabolus and I wanted to, as I went away from Palabolus, I wanted to keep that as a as an aspect of my work, my career, my work life that I really enjoy. I think that Palabolus really approaches, you mentioned something about like the transition into or something. And I think that I grew up in a really blue collar area. A lot of people, I worked in steel factory and construction. And the, I, I, so I come from this blue collar approach and I always had a curiosity for knowledge and I wanted to find out what else was out there. And I really desired to be sort of like an intellectual type. And I think in a way I was even trying to act like 
somebody who I would have admired or something, mostly because if they they were different from me, you know, maybe they weren't, they, they grew up with money or something, I don't know, they had a fancy car. But I think when I joined Palopolis, I saw that they, Robbie Barnett, this founder that I quoted earlier, he said, we have a blue collar approach to art making. He had the coolest office I've ever seen, just like completely just stuff from decades of of uh, artists visiting, passing through and mailing him stuff, just everything posted on the wall around like a, just a giant art collage of this guy's life, including a bag of my hair because <laughs> he wanted me to shave my head really bad when I joined. And I have red hair and it's always been a defining character of me and people have always said, oh, the, the redhead, you know, like that's how people... And I was like, oh, I don't know, I'm going to shave my head. Like, I used to shave when I was a kid, but I don't know. And so he, long story short, he talked me into shaving my head. And so I went home one day, and I did it at home, and I was going to come in, surprise him the next day. And I got there early, and I just put a bag of red hair in a Ziploc bag on his desk so that he knew that when he arrived at the studio, I would have shaved my head. But uh, I didn't expect him to just take a thumbtack and, like, just, put the, just this Ziploc bag of ginger hair just stayed on his wall for the entire, you know, like a decade later. It was just like there, like perfectly preserved. <laughs> Point was, I'm sorry, I went off on a tangent, but I had to give you a little bit of a scope of like the bird's nest and the wasp nests and like skulls and things that were like all over this guy's uh, walls, like just like an art experience going in there. But he had a, a quote on the wall and it said, uh, I don't have time for inspiration. I just get to work. And that was kind of the approach of Palopolis. They're like, we're just going to start making stuff. And then eventually something cool will pop up or maybe it won't, but then we'll just keep making stuff. And like eventually down the line, something will happen. And it's just a very blue collar way of approaching art. You don't like have a, like a glorious uh, plan and all of this stuff. You just, you get some people together who you think are interesting producers, interesting makers interesting thinkers and you start working and the ideas that come out you assess and then you continue and you just get to work and i think i'm, I'm that's one of the big things that has really benefited me from having this experience with blobolus is just the very sort of rudimentary and effective approach to art making and I think it's like as successful as like, the success rate is not perfect, but it's as as successful as any other method that I've tried and really has allowed me to connect with my this world that I come from that is like the working class and they just work all the time. That's what they do. And, you know, so it's allowed me to embrace that and employ it in my other ventures. Hi, ho, hi, ho. <laughs> to work we go. <laughs> Speaking of your own ventures, because you like briefly mentioned about uh, these sessions that you're running yourself, these kind of improv sessions, as well as well, this is something you mentioned to us before recording. Yeah. Can you tell us more about this? This as well as residencies that you've been doing or are interested to do? Yeah. So um, maybe f five or six years ago, a um, colleague of mine and from sort of my generation in New York, Tali Jackson, who's just an incredible mover and thinker. I, I really have a lot of respect for this man. 
he danced with uh, Bilty Jones, Arnie Zane Dance Company for a number of years. Sort of had parallel uh, career and life events happening for like a decade. We were students together at the American Dance Festival in um, Durham, North Carolina at Duke University during the summers. And um, then we went off and had very different but parallel experiences, as I said, he and Bilty Jones and me and Palopoulos. And we had this ongoing artistic conversation over the years that eventually led to us having some creative sessions together. And then we decided, um, let's, you know, like, let's bring other people that we find interesting into this. And sort of one of the end results was we had a residency in the Berkshires in Massachusetts out on a beautiful compound. And we got together for like 10 days and just we got some funding from some fantastic folks, Tracy and Darcy Beyer, who have supported the arts in myriad ways. And we, yeah, we had a creative residency with no, the, the idea was to try to create a space without any deadlines and to get together a group of people who are going to be producing things. And that was understood, but there were no deadlines and no specific goals. And it was really fruitful and fantastic. And then I moved to Europe <laughs> and that's that chapter kind of came to a close of, of that series. And recently I just started organizing some open creative spaces. I don't like to call them like improv jams or something because they're not, there's a bit more of a structure and then it's not necessarily only just improv, but that's sort of, there's an element of that kind of open vibe of free association. And I've been incorporating friends from um, New York and LA and also from Brussels and the area around here and it's starting really small but it's been fantastic I'm working with some friends from Peeping Tom and from abroad as well and from Eastman also of course and it's uh, just been a really positive way to increase the sort of dynamic range of the creative conversation that I'm having with my colleagues in the area and again there's no specific point there's no deadline, there's no thing that we have to produce, which is a freeing thing for me outside of the structure of work where normally you're really working toward a deadline and uh, you have to produce something quite specific. So I'm excited for that to grow once once the corona isolation lockdown ban has been lifted to get that back up and running and to get more people into the, the space. It's kind of like just a space where you congregate fellow artists to share and exchange. Absolutely, yeah. I have open creative space and I hope that it can lead again to uh, another like sit down residency because I think that was really where we we all we got some funding and we were able to step away from our daily lives to really produce in a concentrated way and to be just involved in this idea exchange but again without the pressure of it sort of was like the the anti-work you know like you you get a little bit of funding, you can afford to step away from your life without having work for a week or two. And you are engaged in a creative exchange that does produce things, but doesn't have any um, specific harshness or you don't have to meet any demands, I guess. There are certainly constraints that we give each other. And I think that the creative mind flourishes in those conditions, but the strict demands of a producer is not standing over you. So is this kind of like a lab session kind yeah, of environment then? Yeah, it's, it's something that I hope to grow here and that I imagine will turn into work. 
Cool. I mean, I, I imagine that we will probably share what we produce at some point. Yeah. But for now, it's it's just a, I'm trying to like build a fertile ground for artists to come together and share ideas and be able to make mistakes without the fear of not making the audition or you know it not making it into the thing or you know whatever i just want to create this uh, open dialogue do you find it then difficult to see a project all the way through when there's no deadline for it to exist i love deadlines don't get me wrong but i think that we always have deadlines and we always stick to our normal pattern of decision making when we have a deadline this has worked in the past this is how i got here and a very important part of expanding the potentials of what we can be making instead of what we have been making is to be able to question how like the, the decisions that we usually make need to be questioned. And I think that's something that I'm interested in providing to a group of people who I think are interesting thinkers. You guys have thought about stuff in really interesting ways. And let's see if there's a new interesting way that you can think about it. Because when you have that deadline, you are more likely to say no to something that is unsure than if you didn't have a deadline. You might, it's like, right? I mean, this Corona time is a pretty interesting example of this. The things that I do during the day are so different than the normal decisions. Even just something simple, like what am I gonna have for breakfast? I like, just explore that for a few hours. <laughs> and I have just had some really weird breakfasts and not all of them have been great. But I'm not going to just explore the options of what I'm going to have for breakfast between the time I get up in the morning and the time that I go to work. You know, that's my deadline. Like I have to eat and it's got to kind of happen quick because I also got to shower and pack a bag. And like if I'm not at work on time, then I'm in trouble. So I don't know. That's a micro example, but... I'm just imagining you walking around the kitchen now in the morning, just being like super creative about it. <laughs> yeah, it's really, why not? Having your breakfast in the I shower. I I got time, Dylan. <laughs> I got time. Just creative days, showering with your clothes on, eating food there. <laughs> I actually have been wanting to not just shower with my clothes on, but I thought it'd be really cool to take some photos like in a suit, but sopping wet. Oh, nice. I'm always, you know, discouraged from doing that outside because, you know, it's like cold and you ruin your clothes or whatever. But And I don't have the big movie budget of making it rain warm water inside some studio somewhere that looks like it's outside, you know. But I can do it in my shower and Photoshop it out. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll send you those photos when, when, I, when I do that, <laughs> post them on the, the blog or whatever. We were talking about Corona creativity, that it's it's interesting what you kind of, get I don't know for me you get kind of get back to base because it's not about a structural norm so do you notice with your training these days or your you don't even need to call it training but just your dance at home what are the things that are coming through the most are they like your core values or your training changes or whatever I have not danced at home once oh wow yeah nice um, which is also interesting. But I, I, to tell you a secret, I never have associated as a dancer. Something I told my friend Tali, the colleague I mentioned in New York, I told him one time, like, I'm, I'm kind of always afraid that someday everyone's going to realize I'm not a dancer. 
Like I've been faking it for a long time, but at some point somebody's going to notice. You're doing a pretty good job of it. <laughs> I'm, I'm faking it. You know, fake it till you make it. But it's kind of a joke and it's kind of not. Just in that I think dancers are amazing human beings and they have an incredible drive and commitment to their craft. And I also have incredible drive and commitment to making stuff. But it's, I think I've sort of arrived in dance accidentally. And I'm not somebody who is like, yeah, I don't know. I just maybe I'm, maybe I'm thinking about it all wrong. Maybe I am a dancer, but I haven't been a dancer during the Corona times. I got together with a, a colleague of mine, and we worked while observing social distancing rules out in a large warehouse space, testing some film for research purposes for a short film. So I danced then. It was just like zero to a hundred, you know, like going like six weeks with no dancing whatsoever, like at all. And then we went out to this massive warehouse space and I full on, full throttle danced out on this concrete, running around, rolling around in the sort of gross dirt and bird poop probably and like whatever is in that warehouse space. And I was like, wow, I went like really hard from not, like from nothing. So hopefully I'll still be able to dance at the end of this. But Well, it's, it's not like you're doing nothing because I'm joining your, okay, I know there are more conditioning classes, but... You do have a bop in the middle of them, you know. I mean, I'm a, I'm a, you know, a groover and a shaker, uh, by heart. But you know, I can't get rid of that. But uh, you know, as far as like, really, wait a minute, I'm lying. My my friend convinced me into taking an online ballet class, which I've done twice, with his mom, and it's like absolutely fantastic. And it's completely in French, and I do my best to follow along what they're saying. It's great. It's also incidentally like the first ballet class that I've taken in years has been online in my living room in, in a language I don't speak, but I'm learning. Is it something in, in regular life anyway? As a dancer in Eastman, do you have like a regular routine in terms of dance training or is it individual? It's uh, very individual in Eastman, yeah. We have uh, an hour, usually depending on our schedule, we usually have an hour to warm up and prepare for our day, but it's... It's individual. I have tried to uh, support a community around that where we offer each other class during that time, um, sort of alternating who is leading. And sometimes it's half of the time and then you have an individual time and sometimes it's the whole thing. And But uh, that's more from my perspective. It's more when I am rehearsal directing, for example, a project. I want that group of dancers, especially because many dancers with Eastman are freelance, so they're coming and going. I want that group of dancers to, to have a community base because I, for me, dance is really about humans interacting with each other. And if you have no base of understanding outside of what you're doing on stage, for me, it falls flat. And when you look at somebody that you know, it's very different immediately. Like it, going back to the ephemeral beauty of live performance, live dance, the information that you can get from a look at another human, it's so subtle. But when you're there in person, you can see that somebody knows someone, dislikes them, knows somebody loves them, knows somebody is attracted to them. This is These are very different things and they're subtle and they're beautiful and you can see them in a person's eyes. And I think that goes to say something about my approach to dances. I, I, when I, I mostly, I embrace most tightly the new creations. I find these to be most um, fulfilling for me to be a part of. And something that I'm really trying to do is generate something new 
And this is, of course, a very difficult thing to do, especially under a, a short time period. And I want my body to be available to me to make new decisions. So I'm warm and I'm physical, but I'm not taking the same dance class every day because I find that dancers who do that tend to make the same choices in a creation always. Okay. And I'm trying my best to make, you know, peel away layers and find new stuff under there somewhere. Yeah, going back to what you said about the beauty of live performance, I watched an interview with you from uh, Jacob's Pillow. Mm -hmm. And in the interview, you mentioned this idea of transcending the choreography and sort of the responsibility that a performer has to do that. And I guess it's interesting because last week we spoke with Nico Monaco and he's the assistant rehearsal director at Akram Khan. And he was kind of talking about this in terms of spirituality. Mm. So it's interesting to kind of see how the two are a little bit related or, or just expressed differently. But you mentioned that this is something that you trained a lot at Palabolus. Pal well, <laughs> yeah, I think in the interview, I was maybe... <laughs> saying that there's not as much choreography in Palabolus as there is uh, in Eastman. I think that it's maybe more importantly about Palabolus's approach and that they indeed approach movement as a human experience. And that because all of the material in Palabolus is generated through improvisation, it's more about trying to reveal something that may be interesting movement through a, sort of an endurance exploration. And you might be tag teaming that exploration with someone else, but it's about reaching some new place rather than inventing new shapes with your arms. And once you sort of discover this new little area that you're going to inhabit that seems interesting, you can trade it off and see how other people inhabit that space. But it's more much I found that the genuine, like the best explorations that we did were about sort of existing in a new, a new version of ourselves or something that was, is different and maybe temporary. And that when the, then, then you have to like mine it, you know, you have to like get out the pickaxe and sort of see what's in that new space. And then the real difficult thing is after you set it and it's on stage and you do it 800 times in front of a live audience, you have to be able to transport yourself to that space again. You can do that partly by revisiting the physical shape, but it, I think the best performances is when you can transport your mind to that place at the risk of sounding slightly psychedelic or something. It's like uh, good acting that you, you feel like that person became somebody else. They were that the character. And I think good actors invent aspects of that character that are unique and rich in a way that it feels like its own like it's a real person and it's sort of just an abstracted version of that when you're creating a movement vocabulary who is the person that would move this way because it's not me maybe I, i'm i'm using me as a vehicle to like uncover it and get there and my colleagues as well but once we're there it's something new you know in your best on your best day maybe it's an extrapolated quality of yourself yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that's like another way of looking at it. So it's in there somewhere, right? You just, you're, you're, you have the pick on yourself. You know, you're not really digging in, in the wall. You're sort of peeling back the, like, what does he say in Shrek? The ogres are like onions. And the donkey's like, they're smelly? He's like, no, oh, there's many layers. 
Or like you try to keep going down through those layers, you know, just like an ogre. <laughs> Sean the ogre, not the dancer. <laughs> well, a good mentor of mine said to me one time, Tatiana Baganova, this amazing Russian choreographer, she said, Sean, you are not beautiful dancer. <laughs> and I said, oh, okay, thank you. She said, you are like animal. I was like, okay. Yeah, he's good thing. <laughs> Great. Thanks, Tatiana. So yeah, you know, you know, uh, Quasimodo. <laughs> I was like, I don't think, uh, I don't know what you're saying. Quasimodo. He rings the bell. Like, Quasimodo? <laughs> he's saying I'm like, Quasimodo? She's like, he's good thing. I was like, oh my God. <laughs> Somebody I really respect and look up to just told me I'm like the hunchback of Notre Dame. This is awful. I've been working on my posture ever since that day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, maybe it's uh, in some uh, ways talking about the same thing I'm talking about that I'm not, I'm so, I'm more interested in like this kind of state of being or something and yeah. rather than a dance technique that you can put names on. Quasimodo. Nice. Better or worst. Cool. Uh, the last thing I want to ask you is, did you, were you able to think of any task or anything improv-wise to give? Ooh, putting you on the spot. I like it. Gosh, I completely forgot about that. <laughs> you can take a second. Uh... Wait, I have one more question, I think. Yes. Go, go for it. <laughs> you mentioned the, the state of being, and that's something that you're really interested in. Do you have like a specific way of getting there, or is that what you're doing kind of with these sessions that you've created to include different information in yourself? I think that a method that I enjoy is like play with push. You play and you investigate and you have somebody who you respect, which I think is a really important thing because you want to actually listen to that person. <laughs> and they are pushing you to go deeper and deeper and giving you direction from the outside. And I think that these sort of creative things can be kind of like mantras where you repeat it so many times that it eventually reveals a new depth. And then once you're at the new depth, you try to repeat that a bit more. And then eventually that will reveal something else. And you're sort of going down little steps down a ladder into something or steps up a ladder, who knows. But I think really through repetitive exploration, you can, you know, it's just like going back to that pickaxe in the wall. Like you hit that pickaxe once against the wall and you're like, yeah, there's no diamonds in this cave. And everyone's like, yeah, cool. Well, he explore. let's pack up and get out of here. New cave, you know, like... <laughs> No, you kind of got to dig for a little bit, you know, like, I don't know. <laughs> and you just swing that axe until maybe it reveals something shiny or something else more interesting. Because who really likes diamonds? Come on. <laughs> Those yeah, poor artists with no work, maybe. <laughs> true. Yeah, if you come on a giant diamond cache, actually, I will be there. <laughs> just not for the diamonds, but, you know, for what they represent to other people. Um, yeah, task. Yeah, I think something that Larby does that I find um, interesting is uh, we work a, we've worked a lot in opera uh, together the past few years and and other situations where there's a script or a story or or something else and maybe this seems really obvious I'm not sure but to to approach the script story music as, as like a dramaturg would. And to define it into simple elements. Um, so you can take a piece of music, for example, and say that this, uh, instead of just trying to improvise to the music or dance around and see how you dance, 
to actually write down ideas of how you would define in very simple ways the music. So you can say dark and swirl and descend and sort of simple. I mean, one word is fantastic if you can do it that way. But then, or take a story and look at it from a dramaturge and say, what are the repetitive defining elements of this story? And explore those things as very simple ideas rather than a big improv exploration of like what it's like to dance to this music. And I think that that gives you a different place to start your exploration from. And if you're feeling like when when you start a project, like how do I start dancing? I don't know, it's like intimidating. I'm gonna create a whole big thing and I have this amazing music. But if you can just think about some very small, give yourselves like really specific constraints. Yeah, Leonardo da Vinci said, art lives in constraint and dies in freedom. And it's my impression that artists frequently, especially young artists, myself as a young artist, we feel like you can't, don't put limits on my art, man. Like I gotta have every, I wanna be able to do absolutely anything. And actually having lots of choices, it gives you paralysis. You yep. don't have any, you don't know which way to go. And if you can take your seemingly limited options and narrow them down even more until it's extremely constrained, moving inside of that constraint will give you fresh ideas in a way that moving in a big open space will not. So I, I always, if I feel like a question mark popping up where I should start, what I should do, I try to give myself a constraint and go from there. It might be wrong, you toss it aside, you get a new one, but these things are really helpful, I've found. Great, thanks. Of course. Steal that jam. <laughs> yeah, put it, put it in a constraint. Yeah, I guess to go with the metaphor anyway of how these rocks form, it's like a lot of pressure. Something being very all the pressure. Yeah. yeah, makes diamonds. That or it kills you. One or the other. <laughs> it will definitely kill you, but maybe you'll turn into a diamond, <laughs> or eventually fossil fuels. Woo! <laughs> cool. Well, it was such a pleasure having you on. To uh, always, Dylan Hayden, such a pleasure to meet you. Yeah, you too. Really. Nice to have a chat today. Likewise. Stay safe, guys. Be well. Yeah, thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Next week, who are we going to have on, Hayden? Next week, we have a uh, nutritionist who is an ex-dancer with the company that I work for, Intradance. Cool. So, yeah, looking forward to finding out how I should actually be eating during Corona. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) Yeah, she might not be so open to your creative breakfast hunt as... (laughs) I'm a relatively healthy guy. Yeah. You can get some pointers, I'm sure. (laughs) But yeah, until next week, thank you everybody for tuning in. And again, thanks, Sean, for coming on and giving us your knowledge. Fun times. This is myself, Dylan, Hayden, and Sean signing off. Bye.